Welcome to American Indian Living, a program developed by the Native Education and Health Initiative to improve and enhance the health of people throughout the Native communities. American Indian Living is hosted by Dr. David DeRose, a board-certified specialist in both internal medicine and preventive medicine. Dr. DeRose has a wide range of experience with Native health issues, and he's ready today to help you learn more about your health. Here's Dr. DeRose. Welcome to American Indian Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We're recording another show from the exciting venue of the National Congress of American Indians in Phoenix, Arizona. It's October 2016 when we're recording. And again, we've got some great guests in our virtual studio right here in the exhibit hall of the Phoenix Convention Center. Sitting across from me, David Brettlinger and Robin Bellows. David, did I do an injustice to your name there? Uh, close enough. Okay. How would you say it? Brentlinger. Brentlinger. Okay. Brentlinger. And Robin, you made it easier on me. Robin Bellows, right? You folks are with an organization or work for an organization called New Forests. Tell us a little bit about what that's about. Sure. New New Forests is actually an investment fund manager focusing on environmental investing, in, particularly in sustainable forestry. So we, among other things, manage over a million acres of forest land internationally. In the United States, we focus on environmental markets. And the one that we're really excited about for Indian country is uh, about forest carbon. Hmm. And that's something that uh, we're a leader in. We were instrumental in starting uh, this as, a, as an opportunity for tribes and other uh, independent forest owners to work with their forests to keep them standing, but also generate income at the same time. Okay. Uh, which is one way that we, uh, we're really doing this as part of the California, uh, Greenhouse Gas Reduction Act. So it's a way of combating global warming. It's a way of retaining your forest lands that you can use for traditional purposes, hunting, fishing, firewood, uh, but at the same time is a large source of uh, income. Hmm. So, Robin, I see that you've been here from the, I think, the beginning of the convention. You're uh, often there at the booth, and you've got a lot of tribal leaders and others coming by. What are you telling tribes they can do to take advantage of some of these opportunities that you and David are presenting? The biggest thing that we're talking about is how and when a forest carbon project fits in with the other goals that a tribe might have for mm. their land and their people. So in some cases, uh, often there are other land goals, such as forest restoration or tribal uses. And so a forest carbon project can go hand in hand with those. So we talk to different folks who stop by at the booth about what the different tribes have been using their carbon projects for. We're working with the Yurok tribe in Northern California mm -hmm. that has two carbon projects going, one with us, and they've been using their carbon projects to assist in reacquiring ancestral territory hmm. along the Klamath River. Uh, and they've also been doing salmon restoration and forest restoration projects along that. So we talk about who might be eligible and about how the carbon project and the revenue from the carbon project can fit in with all the other goals that a tribe might have or a, f a forest landowner might have. Well, David, this is all sounding very interesting to me, who's really just learning about it, and I'm sure to many of our listeners. 
but I'm having trouble connecting all the dots. So, <laughs> so how does this process actually work? So a tribe has, let's just say, for example, let's say they have 100,000 acres of forest on their reservation. How can they generate revenue from this? Well, the first thing they need to do is get in touch with us. Okay. And we're based in, in San Francisco, but anybody can find us through forestcarbonpartners.com. Okay. Uh, so that's our website, forestcarbonpartners.com. Uh, so that's an initial point of contact. Uh, but uh, what happens after that is a very thorough assessment of uh, forest lands. And uh, I should mention up front that this process of registration and getting engaged in the system is something that we pay for. Mm. Uh, the tribes don't have to put a dime into it. They don't need to actually lift a finger to get registered. We handle all of that and uh, at no cost to the tribes. Uh, the, the actual process of registration is fairly complicated, so that's a real benefit for the mm -hmm. tribes not to have to hassle with that. Robin uh, is a trained forester, among other things, and can give you, I think, a real vivid description of what the registration uh, looks like on the ground uh, because she was just up in Alaska recently doing just that. Oh, okay, so were you working with uh, an indigenous group up there, or was this another uh, party? We were working with the Port Graham Corporation, mm -hmm. which is a village corporation and from an indigenous area in near Homer, Alaska. And I was up there for the field inventory kickoff, which is early in the carbon offset process. Mm -hmm. So the it starts off with a field inventory to see what kinds of trees you are, how many there are, what you have, um, and fundamentally assessing whether the forest in that area has more and larger trees than the long-term average of private landowners in that area. So we went out, we put a series of uh, random plots in the forest, and I remember one day in particular when we were bushwhacking up a hill in the rain, and I was thinking, what am I doing? <laughs> Why am I here? Uh, and then we got to the plot and wrapped a measuring tape around a number of trees and measured their heights, and I thought... Oh yeah, this, this is a stand of trees that if this project is successful, this stand of trees will be able to stay standing. Mm. And the people who have been living here and who benefit from this as well as all the wildlife can also stay here. So after we take those measurements, we, it takes quite a long time to do permitting and modeling, um, and submit a variety of reports that go into the California cap and trade market, um, where we assess how much standing carbon there is above a baseline for that area. Hmm. And then carbon offset credits are claimed for every ton of carbon that that landowner has that's above and beyond the standard for that area. So so this is uh, what's really confusing to me, someone who's heard some of these terms tossed around, but have, have I actually have no idea how this works. Yeah. So if this California cap-and-trade system Anyone can be a part of that? You don't have to be based in California? That's an excellent point. And it, it's, these are credits that are sold into the California market, but we can work with anybody anywhere in the country, and we do, in order to generate the credits. So we have, we have projects in Maine. We have projects in Kentucky. We've got a very large project with uh, Mescalero Apache in New Mexico, hmm. several in Northern California, uh, I've been talking to tribes in Oklahoma and in Washington State. 
So it's it's a it's a great opportunity for tribes anywhere in the country to find another revenue source uh, without cutting trees. So basically, the ones funding this are industry because they're having to do carbon offsets. Is that how it works? Correct. Yeah. If you if you emit carbon dioxide uh, as an industry in California, you have to offset that, and we provide that method. Uh, because nature has provided the perfect way of reducing carbon dioxide through trees. Mm-hmm. You know, it's pretty simple uh, biology. Uh, trees are doing what they do best, which mm-hmm. is absorbing carbon dioxide. So this program uh, is is the best way to reduce carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and therefore help combat global warming. So now, Robin, the th- other thing that's confusing to me is why does why does the the forest or the the stand of trees or whatever you're looking at have to be greater than baseline? What, what, you know, so if if they looked at a forest and said, "No, well, these trees are just the same as you know this residential area," they're not going to get any credit for that. Right. That gets into some of the nitty gritty details of the protocol, mm-hmm. um, which I don't think anyone. Wants to hear me reciting parts of the protocol. Well, I'm trying to understand this conceptually. So, I don't. Want, I don't want you to go through the whole yeah. application. The idea is that, as David said, as trees grow, they pull carbon dioxide out of the air and store it in wood. Um, there's a lot of carbon stored in all of our wood furniture, mm-hmm. homes, etc. Um, and under the regulatory program in California, um, each offset basically counteracts carbon dioxide that's emitted by the various emitters, oil companies, gas companies, etc. Mm-hmm. So they want to ensure that each tree that goes into a carbon project is additional, is above a business-as-usual us- scenario, is carbon getting put into trees in a way that it might not otherwise happen. Hmm. So that, that additionality, that we're doing something extra for the planet and for this forest comes in part from being above the average for the region. Okay. I'm a strict layman when it comes to the technology <laughs> uh-huh. that Robin's talking about. So I, I try to describe it as, uh, in response. Usually someone will come up to me and say, I've got a tree in my backyard. Can I get money for that? Okay. And uh, the answer is, well, if you have a forest uh, uh, harvest permit for that tree, maybe but uh but it's the the whole idea is that you're saving something that otherwise would have been cut for commercial purposes i see and yeah. so if i in, got in it a, okay and in a number of places um by often by law or by the the timber plans uh tribes or other forest owners uh don't cut below a certain level in their forests. Mm-hmm. And so uh, so the idea is you don't get credit for doing something you were going to do anyway in mm-hmm. terms of saving trees. You get credit for saving something otherwise you were going to cut or that you could cut mm-hmm. uh, by law or by under your usual practice. Okay. So it's really a way of preventing the system from being gamed. Uh-huh. uh-huh. We're getting paid for something that isn't really helping the reduce carbon dioxide because you have to do it anyway. Okay. Okay. No, that actually makes makes a lot of sense. So tribes are listening. 
people from all across Indian country. We've got other listeners who are not Native American. This is not something exclusively that's a Native benefit. Anyone could do this theoretically. Any forest owner. Uh, we work with tribes. We happen to be the, the largest uh, uh, registrant of tribal forest lands in the program. Uh, and uh, But we also work with families. Uh, we work with a college. Mm. Uh, we work with a nonprofit that owns trees, a, a foundation. Uh, so we, we typically don't work with the large industrial uh, forest companies only because they will harvest things down to the bare minimum. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we find that tribes are, uh, lightly harvest their holdings and families that own forest lands uh, also take a lighter hand in, in harvesting. Mm-hmm. So there tends to be that additionality that Robin spoke of that qualifies for the program. Now, Robin, you and I were speaking, and I can imagine that there are many listeners, some of whom say, wow, I've got five acres, I've got ten acres, maybe I'll start getting money, but it doesn't quite work that way, huh? Yeah, it's generally a large-scale project. So we have, it depends where you are and what kind of forest you're in, we tend to have projects start penciling out to be financially profitable at around 5,000 acres. Okay. And then the larger they are, potentially the greater the revenue coming off the project. So let's talk about that. A tribe's listening in right now. They don't have maybe huge uh, forested holdings, but let's say part of their nation includes 10,000 forested acres. Now, I've already learned that the amount they could get back from that is going to depend tremendously on the size of the trees, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But if you were to look at kind of an average project, are we talking, you know, tens of dollars a, a year or hundreds or thousands? I mean, what? why, why would I start walking down this, pro, you know, process? It's in the millions. What millions? can come from these carbon projects? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So a project that we started in Northern California and it's about an 8,000-acre project. There was about 800,000 credits in the first few years, uh-huh. um, which translates, I'm doing the math in my head here, um, if you do a rounded average of $10 a credit, that would be $8 million wow. for about 8,000 acres of land. And, and the significant part of that is that you get it up front, Wow. That's a big block of money. This is exciting. We have got to talk more about this. You guys can stay by, right? Yeah. Okay, I'm staying by. If you're listening in, you want to learn how this can make a difference for you personally, for your tribe, for your community. We'll be back with more on today's edition of American Indian Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. Don't go away. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. This is Betty White. I know you don't need one more thing to worry about, but listen, high blood pressure can cause kidney damage, blindness, heart attack, stroke, and you can have high blood pressure even if you feel all right. One in seven adults has it, but it's easy to get your blood pressure checked and you can treat it if it is too high. So don't worry about it. Don't ignore it. Just see your doctor and check it out. For your free booklet, visit the Will Rogers Institute at wrinstitute.org and find us on Facebook and Twitter. Emergency medical. 
medical unit. Respond to 102 Maple Avenue. Possible stroke victim. When stroke occurs, you have 60 minutes to win or lose the race of your life. There are new treatments, but you must get to a hospital fast. If you suddenly feel weakness on one side, have trouble speaking, walking, or seeing, it could be a stroke. Call 911. Get to a hospital. Because how you spend the next 60 minutes could determine how you spend the rest of your life. Stroke. Know the signs. Act in time. A message from the National Institute of Neurological Disorders in Stroke. If you receive disability benefits, keeping Social Security informed is key. Keeping us informed minimizes the chance that we learn about something later that could negatively affect your benefits. That's the surprise no one wants because it creates overpayments that you must repay, disrupts payments, and can even jeopardize your entitlement to Social Security benefits. Learn more about reporting responsibilities for people working and receiving disability or SSI benefits by reading our online publications, Working While Disabled, How We Can Help, and How Work Affects Your Benefits at www.socialsecurity.gov pubs. Some changes can be reported online at www.socialsecurity.gov. You can also notify us at 1-800-772-1213 or contact your local Social Security office. Our goal at Social Security is to pay you the right amount on time every month. With your cooperation to keep us informed of changes, the likelihood of any unpleasant surprises that could derail your benefits will be greatly minimized. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE, 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. You are back with Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. That's the radio show. And, uh, of course, it's a radio show because you're listening in on the radio, no doubt, unless you're listening to one of our streamed programs. We are on the Internet, and one of the great places to listen to streamed shows is through Native Voice One, one of the networks that carries the broadcast. Well, back here in Phoenix, Arizona, in the convention hall for NCA. 2016 are my two guests, Robin Bellows and David Brentliger. They have not gone anywhere, and uh, we're glad that you have stayed by. Robin, before we stepped away for the break, you were telling us some things that really got me excited. I mean, I I thought this was small-time stuff, but 8,000 acres can put $8 million in the pocket of a tribe? I mean, Yes. and, And, David, you were saying that that can be given up front? Right. Yeah, the these are sold to the market in California, uh, but we generate the largest number of credits in year one. Okay. And so the the numbers that Robin was talking about, the eight million dollars as a sample, uh, was available over the you know once we registered the the credits, which does take time. Mm-hmm. Once we had them though registered, we could sell them to uh, buyers that we know of already that we have an existing relationship with and are waiting for us to provide them with these credits. Hmm. So we can sell a whole bunch of them right out of the the box. And then thereafter, there are annual sales possible, uh, but they're not as large. Okay. But there's still ongoing revenue thereafter. So the biggest cash chunk is in the first, call it 18 months uh, after we register the credits. So what does that commit a tribe to? I mean, can they not develop that land for 20 years or 100 years, or what's the commitment? Well, the commitment is not to cut 
an equivalent amount of car of trees for a period of 100 years, which okay. sounds like a long time. Uh, but you know, the amazing thing about working with tribes is that 100 years is not a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, because of the seven-generation outlook that tribes have uh, and the respect for forests in future generations, uh, it's amazing to hear that 100 years is not that long. Uh, but for those who do care about that time frame, uh, it's something that doesn't stop you from cutting uh, trees. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just means you whatever if you sell a million tons of carbon credits, you have to retain the equivalent of, of uh, that many tons of, of trees. Uh, and if for whatever reason you want to get out of it, mm-hmm. you can you can buy those credits back. Uh, and it restores your right to cut any trees that you've got. So it's basically almost like a lien on your property, if you if you well, will. Well, it's it's a con- it's a contract. Mm-hmm. It's not an encumbrance on the property. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's not a, a typical you know land encumbrance. It's it's an agreement. But a, but a tribe couldn't sell. I mean, not that they would usually be interested in doing this, but they couldn't sell off lands or a private individual. Correct. Correct. If they had already received this, uh, well, they can sell it, but the obligation then would—they'd have to agree to uh, to impose the obligation on the buyer. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, for example, if you're a landowner mm-hmm. and you have some land that has a hundred trees on it, okay. and in the first beginning of the project, you sell, you create a carbon project mm-hmm. on all hundred of those trees. As time passes. Your trees grow, and after a few years, you'll not have 100 trees. You'll have 120 trees. Mm -hmm. The initial 100 trees that were enrolled in the carbon project are still connected to the carbon project. That contract's still valid. Mm -hmm. For the 20 new trees that have grown, they're not not directly involved. Um, And as long as the 100 trees are maintained on the project, all the growth can be used for timber, be burned in a fire, can be can be used for whatever purses, purposes, including being also enrolled in the carbon project. Now, if, if 20 of those new trees was the equivalent, had the equivalent carbon, you call it a carbon footprint? Not really? Or carbon offset? What is the term? The, it would be the, the carbon, I'd call it the carbon content. Okay, so if, if uh, 20 trees, 20 young trees had the carbon content of one older tree, you could take, you could take down that older tree at some point? Correct. Okay, yeah, I, they're, they're interchangeable. Okay, I think I'm, I'm getting the idea here. So basically, we're talking about a lot of potential revenue to landowners, especially to tribes. And I don't know who operates this uh, California cap and trade market. Is this a a state based thing? So it is a government entity. It's the state of California. Specifically, the Air Resources Board is the state agency that governs it. Okay. So the state agency is actually handling these financial transactions. Well, um, they they oversee the structure of this. Uh-huh. Uh, they they are the ones who enforce these emission caps okay. industry, and but our relationship with the buyers is direct. Uh, so we have these relationships with buyers, and we just contract directly with them. In turn, the carbon emitters will show that they've satisfied their obligation to the state and the state will say fine okay so you guys are acting as kind of middlemen in the financial transactions as well so the the industry and 
an industry carbon producer is going to pay you money, and you're going to give that money to a tribe? Correct. Yeah. Okay. So the the tr- we we're a for profit venture. Mm-hmm. So but so and as I said, we pay for all the costs involved in registering and doing the inventory and finding the buyers. So we take a certain percentage of the sale, but the vast majority of it goes straight through to the tribe. Okay. So that's how you guys are able to, to make yeah. a living. And we set it up so that our incentives are aligned with the landowner or the tribe as much as possible. So we only make money when the landowner makes money and right. we make less money than the landowner so that our, we are working for the tribe um, in developing the carbon offset project. So, so roughly what kind of percentage is involved? You know, it varies uh-huh. um, because we have certain fixed costs regardless of the size. Oh, okay, you know, fair we, enough. We still have to go to the state. We still have to go out on and do the uh, inventory that Robin did in, in Alaska. Uh-huh. That we'll, we'll ask for a larger percentage for small projects than we will for large projects. Okay, okay. So, fair enough. Yeah, so the definite answer is it depends. <laughs> well, that's, uh, that's always a good answer. But if a tribe is wanting to go this route, do they need to uh, to search a number of organizations like yours and compare prices? You know, the, there are some others who who do this. Um, I would say, yeah, people are, should should shop around. But I'd say that you know, we're the ones who registered the very first tribal project, and we have more tribal projects than anybody else does. Uh, and uh, we also have more resources than other folks doing this mm-hmm. uh, because we're part of a larger organization. We own sawmills, so we were able to provide sawmill consultations hmm. to tribes who are, who are trying to mill their own uh, timber. Okay. And, uh, and then, as Robin mentioned earlier, we also can provide land banking resources for tribes that are that are trying to not just manage their forest land, but manage their land holdings in, in total. Robin, help us with this concept, land banking. If someone's not familiar with that, what are we what are we dealing with? I think that what we're talking about here is that many of the tribes that we work with have the goal of reacquiring ancestral territory and homelands in their area. And so a carbon project can provide the revenue that it can be used to purchase that land, including the purchase of that land, if it's forest land and it goes into a carbon project, can go directly into a carbon project to, mm. to counter the costs of buying that land. Okay. And, of course, that's all very specific to particular tribe situation. Um, we're working with one group in Alaska that has a lot of different allotments that's owned by different shareholders within the tribe there. And so there's some potential to... Uh, use the, the carbon project and and the timber rights involved in a carbon project to consolidate the allotments hmm. back under central tribal management. Okay, so this is very interesting. Now, David, you were uh, talking with me a little bit uh, about some of the things happening right here at the National Congress of American Indians. And one of the sessions here at NCAI was something you attended, and it was titled Update on Tribal Lands. Land restoration, buyback, and trust modernization. Now, if that's not a mouthful, <laughs> I don't know what is. It, it is a mouthful, but it's also a very big topic. Um, it, it, as Robin mentioned, 
tribes are very concerned with the allotments. And uh, an interesting fact was that 90 million acres of tribal land was lost through the allotment process mm. through 1934. Mm-hmm. And tribes have been trying to recover a lot of that ever since then. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's been a very slow process for tribes. This session that, that I went to yesterday mm-hmm. uh, addressed one method of doing that through the... Um, uh, Cobell uh, settlement. And this is a lawsuit settlement that generated some funding that is available to tribes to, to repurchase some of these allotments. But it's n- not nearly as much money as we provide, for instance. Mm. You know, $8 million in one situation goes a lot further than what most of these grants have done. Okay. Well, I mean, this is very interesting stuff. We have got to talk more about this. We're talking with David Brentlinger and with Robin Bellows, they work with an organization called New Forests. It's actually part of the Forest Carbon Partners, and they're telling us how tremendous things can happen in Indian country if we start to realize some of the modern opportunities, uh, especially provided through the California cap and trade market. We're going to talk more about that in our next segment. Don't go away. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We'll be back with more on today's edition of American Indian Living. American Indian Living will continue in a moment. If you have questions or comments about today's pre-recorded broadcast, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. So, you want to be a hero. Here are some ways to get the job. Hunt down that killer shark. Or run into a burning house to save a kitten. Luckily, there's an easier way to become a hero. Call 911 if you see someone experiencing the symptoms of stroke, sudden weakness on one side, or trouble speaking, walking, or seeing. Stroke. Know the signs. Act in time. You'll be a real hero. A message from the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke. Can you guess what's going on here? It's kids getting fit. Studies show that children and teens who get at least 60 minutes of physical activity a day reduce the risk of obesity, heart disease, anxiety, and increase their overall mood. So whether it's around your neighborhood or at school, just get out and play. For your free booklet, visit WRInstitute.org or call toll-free 877-957-7575 and find us on Facebook and Twitter. The Will Rogers Institute since 1936. My name is Tom Thornton. And my name is Cindy Thornton. We're retired, and this is how we live United. We decided to volunteer with United Way at our community free health clinic. United Way is how we contribute. Because we know our time and money are going to the right places. Judging by the thank yous we get at the clinic, I'd say we're doing the right thing with our retirement, too. We're Tom and Cindy Thornton. We volunteer at our community free health clinic. We don't just wear the shirt. We live it. Give. Advocate. Volunteer. Live United. Go to liveunited.org. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. Diabetes affects more than 29 million Americans. If left untreated, diabetes can lead to serious health problems such as heart disease, stroke, blindness, and kidney disease. Your family's health history can be an important factor in determining your risk of developing diabetes. The National Diabetes Education Program wants to help you and your family. Do all you can to prevent or delay the onset of type 2 diabetes. Visit yourdiabetesinfo.org to learn more. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. 
1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. You are back with Dr. David DeRose and with Robin Bellows, David Brentlinger sitting across from me. We're speaking about how you can make a difference as far as carbon emissions in the world and how your tribe can benefit from it. It's an exciting topic. Even if you're not native, this is something that applies to land owners regardless of what their demographics are. Right, guys? Yep. Uh, Absolutely. Now, one of the questions that came up in our dialogue at the break was uh, some of this is starting to sound a little bit scary from the vantage point of Indian country because I can hear some tribal leaders listening in and they're saying we're not wanting to sell any of our assets on tribal properties. Robin, is this does it need to be looked at as a sale of something? I think that's a really important point um, since you are selling credits, but it's definitely not selling land. Um, the landowner remains the landowner. Uh, the state of California does not own that land. The company that ultimately buys the offset credits does not own that land. And if you work with Forest Carbon Partners, Forest Carbon Partners also does not. So it's a, it's a particular, um, system of reporting and focusing on carbon offsets. Uh, but it's not an easement and not an encumbrance on the land, which I think is really important for every landowner that, that um, a carbon project is, does not turn into a land grab, but rather an investment in the land that they own. No, this is, this is really an important point. And David, I'm sure in your interaction with tribes, this dialogue has come up more than once, hasn't it? Oh, yeah. It, um, you know, it's a, it's a complicated concept. And there are a lot of questions, and I guess the good thing is that we've done it enough times now that we're very patient in in understanding that it's a big decision, and we, we're fully transparent. We give tribes whatever information we have or they ask for, uh, and we work with tribes because mm-hmm. it's you know it's important that they that anybody who who decides to do this is comfortable, and we have. Absolutely no doubts that it's beneficial, but uh, we need to make sure that the tribes feel the same way. Mm-hmm. Now, another really interesting thing about the whole dialogue is the two of you. You're involved in really an area that is benefiting tribes, and I can see people at a tribal level saying, well, wow, I mean, how do you get into doing work like this? I mean, maybe I could get involved. I can see a you know a young adult listener, maybe someone... Uh, considering career options. You know, we're sitting here with Robin, and Robin, it doesn't look like you're probably in your 60s yet. You, you seem to be fairly young in your work <laughs> I've career. got a while to go okay. before I'm in my 60s, uh, okay. yeah. So you, you disclose that you're in your 20s, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay, so you've been, you know, relatively new on the scene, but you actually have a background in forestry, is that right? Yes, I do. I grew up in Oakland, California, in a very urban environment, hmm. but I went out into the woods as often as I could. Um, I ended up getting a master's degree in forestry at the University of California. And I did that because I wanted to work in the woods. I wanted to be outside. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to be doing a job where I was thinking and Mm. felt like I was making a contribution to the world. And for me, forestry was had ecology, had economics, and had community all together. And that's also what brings me to carbon projects. 
when I was in Alaska a, a few months ago working with a village corporation to kick off an inventory there, we were working alongside and had hired a number of local youth, local young people, to carry out that forest inventory. Hmm. So that was a really neat opportunity for me, and I think also for the town that was doing this carbon project, to have local young people to be involved in the carbon project and to be carrying out the inventory that ultimately goes into the carbon project. So if I'm getting the picture correct, you had Native Alaskan youth and young adults that you were actually hiring Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to be involved in this. Yeah. So this is pretty exciting. So not only is a tribe getting these financial benefits, you're actually employing some of their own tribal members to be involved in the process and and paying them in the process of doing that. Yeah, which absolutely has a benefit to the folks being employed and also to Forest Carbon Partners as the project developer to have that kind of local knowledge and expertise in carrying out the project. It's really valuable and, for me at least, was a fantastic experience. Now, you disclosed that you were not always having a fantastic experience. You mentioned this one day where it was pouring rain or whatever, and you're doing the assessment. What was the response of the indigenous workers? Did they say at the end of a week or so, we're out of here, and you had to hire a new team every week? Or was this something that some of them, you saw lights going on, and they said, I would love to do this? Or is that unrealistic to expect that? I was really really deeply impressed by the indigenous folks that we were working with. There were a number of young people who had, who in their free time would go hunting or hiking in the area. And when we were doing the carbon project for work, we were walking across that area to get to the carbon plots. And the work in the woods of learning to measure trees and to measure them accurately and to navigate from site to site in the woods I saw folks really enjoying that and mm. thinking, wow, maybe there's a career here for me. Maybe wow. I could also be a forester, which is really exciting for me because uh-huh. that, that's what brings me to it as well. No, that's exciting. Now, David, I've gathered that your background is perhaps a little bit different than forestry. Yeah, and I'm, I'm definitely not in my 20s. Okay. <laughs> well, <laughs> thanks for this. Yeah. I, you know, I didn't want to ask, but... <laughs> no, I, I have a, a long uh, business background. Okay. And uh, But I, I, part of that is working for Weyerhaeuser for mm. over 20 years mm-hmm. in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, so my familiarity with, with forests is, is more from a business side than from the uh, tree-dimensional side. But it's been very helpful for me being able to look at other land that other forest companies may own that could fit into some of these projects we work with with tribes. So I had just had to step out for a phone call uh, that I was taking with uh, another forest company in Washington State, and I'm mm. trying to set up a land swap uh, mm. with between that company and a uh, an infill project we're working on so a tribe could basically buy a, a large tract of land uh, using this land swap. So my, my background in warehousers helped me with relationships with other forest owners that I can then bring to bear with our carbon projects. I've also worked with uh, tribes in other capacities. I work with the Stiligwamish in Puget Sound on some economic development uh, issues, 
in years gone by. I also did some work with the Nisqually. And uh, so I have um, some tribal experience. I lived in New Mexico for, for years and, and spent time with the Pueblos there. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, working with tribes is something I really enjoy. I really enjoy the, the cultural aspects of it and um, have attended several ceremonies. The Nisqually gave me a uh, carved uh, cedar canoe and, mm-hmm. and uh, for helping them sponsor a... Um, it was really a rededication ceremony for some some sacred ground that they had. So I, I really enjoy getting to know the differences between the tribes. There are so many, especially in the West, mm-hmm. and they're all different. Now, let's kind of bring this back with your you know unique backgrounds. You're bringing your talents to this. You're helping tribes. You've worked with uh, a number of tribes throughout the country. You mentioned an interesting concept, and... I don't know how the logistics of this work, but talk to uh, potential tribal leaders, tribal elders that may be tuning in today, and they heard this term land swap. And put that in the context of this session that we referred to earlier where we were talking about tribes buying back ancestral lands. Can you help us put some of those concepts together? Sure. Well, it gets into um, really a tax issue that... In this one circumstance, we're trying to help a tribe buy some land uh, that they wanted to acquire for a long time. Mm-hmm. And in, in this example, the land seller wants to stay in the forestry business. And so we're trying to find an equivalent piece of ground for that land seller. I see. Okay. So I've been talking to other companies that may have that land. Mm-hmm. And uh, so by land swap, it's, it's really just part of the puzzle of, mm-hmm. of uh, looking for ways that we can achieve a tribal objective to acquire land that they may want, whether it's, a, whether it's fractionated land or old allotments or whole parcels mm-hmm. that may be 10,000 acres. We try to be creative about ways to achieve that. And some of it we can do directly through the sale of forest carbon credits, and others we can uh, conceivably buy on behalf of the tribe and then transfer ownership over time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So uh, that's one thing that we can bring to the table. Okay, that, so a lot of creative strategies oh, there. Yeah. Robin, there's a lot of folks who've been listening. We gave out the uh, contact information earlier, but help us. Uh, let's make sure that this is something that we've all got fresh in our minds. How does someone contact your group if they want to start this process rolling or at least explore options? They can go to our website. It's forestcarbonpartners.com because we partner with forest owners for forest carbon projects. Um, and at forestcarbonpartners.com, there's both information on how to contact us and lots more information about forest carbon projects and what they are and how they can contribute to land stewardship. Okay, forestcarbonpartners.com. Yes. That's right. And if, the, if as a tribe, uh, you have a recent inventory of, uh, of your timber that we can start with, we, can, we have the ability to do a fairly rapid estimate Mm. of what that carbon content may be. So it's something where you don't have to wait a really long time just mm-hmm. to see if it makes sense. 
to pursue. So our, we have a people much smarter than I am who can uh, calculate these things, uh, who are foresters, have PhDs in biometrics, and uh, also were part of the original protocol writing for this program. So oh, okay. they're, they're quite expert at what they do. So let me see if I've, if I've really got the, one of the take-home messages clear. Right now, there are potentially hundreds of tribes, many of whom are represented here at the National Congress of American Indians, who may be literally sitting on millions of dollars worth of carbon offsets on their tribal lands. That's right. Yeah. This program, I think, is a really unique opportunity for forest conservation and also for bringing money into rural economies and to tribes. It's a really unique opportunity where we can do land stewardship that's good for the land and good for people as well. Now, what I'm really hoping is that you guys can stay by for our final segment. Let me tell you what I want to do. I want to hear some some more success stories. You think we can pull that together? Sure. Okay, you guys are game. I'm game. I encourage you, stay by. We've got a final segment coming up in today's edition of American Indian Living from Phoenix, Arizona, at the National Congress of American Indians. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We will be back with more in today's edition of the show. Don't miss some final things that pull this all together and give you some more encouragement to take advantage of something that can make a huge difference for your tribe. I'm Dr. DeRose. Don't go away. We will be right back. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. One day, I'll teach chemistry to kids. I'm going to be an architect. My dream is to be a chef. At the U.S. Department of Education's Office of Federal Student Aid, we provide more than $150 billion each year in grants, loans, and work-study funds, making higher education possible for anyone at any stage of life. I can go back to college. I can change careers. I can make a difference. Federal Student Aid, proud sponsor of the American Mind. Learn more about money for college at studentaid.gov. Diabetes is a serious disease that runs in families. If your parents or siblings have type 2 diabetes, you have a greater chance of getting the disease. If you're African American, Hispanic, or Latino, American Indian, Alaska Native, Asian American, Native Hawaiian, or Pacific Islander, you also have a higher chance of developing the disease. The National Diabetes Education Program wants to help you understand your risk. Visit the NDEP website at yourdiabetesinfo.org for diabetes prevention tools, including the Family Health History Quiz. It started off as a normal day. I felt fine when I arrived at the plant. Ruth Junius's life was about to change. Then I dropped my keys. They kept slipping out of my hand. My arm felt numb. A co-worker asked me if I was okay, and I couldn't speak. I started to get scared. Ruth was having a stroke. People around her weren't sure what to do. They thought I should go home or lie down, but I knew something was very wrong. I wrote 911 on a piece of paper with my other hand. And someone called for me. Because everyone acted quickly, doctors at the hospital were able to give Ruth treatment that started to reverse the symptoms. Within a few minutes, I was talking again. I didn't know a thing about stroke before I had one. Now I make sure that my friends and family know all the signs of stroke so they'll get help fast if they need it. No stroke. Know the signs. Act in time. 
Call 1-800-352-9424 for more information. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, National Institutes of Health. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome to our final segment of today's edition of American Indian Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We are broadcasting from the venue of the National Congress of American Indians in Phoenix, Arizona. We're recording the show in October of 2016, and we've been talking with some of the team of Forest Carbon Partners. David Brentlinger and Robin Bellows have been sitting across from me for the duration, and you guys have abandoned your booth. You've been so gracious. <laughs> um, some people, though, are just joining us, no doubt. Tell us, David, if you were to just recap in 30 seconds, what do you hope tribes will hear while they're in this venue at NCAI or when they listen to the show? Well, I hope tribes will take away from the show that there's a there's a great revenue source uh, from their forest lands that does not involve cutting the forests, mm. and uh, that uh, we work with tribes to create forest carbon credits for sale in the California market, but those credits can come from anywhere in the country, and we source them with tribes all over, and uh, we work closely with tribes to also make them succeed in other uh, goals they may have that are land-related. Mm-hmm. Now, Robin, is that the, the nucleus of what you've been communicating at the booth, or are there some other important aspects that a lot of tribes are, are inquiring about? Yeah, that's the heart of it. Right now, due to the California cap-and-trade market, there's a really special opportunity and a new tool for keeping forests as standing forests that can go into land stewardship um, rural economic development and and creating healthy environments that it's a really unique opportunity that we get to work in right now. Now, you guys seem very bright, very intelligent, very much on top of this field, but you aren't two people who just read a bunch of books and now are talking about something that you really haven't experienced. We've already sensed that, but I think our listeners would really be captivated by some success stories. We promised that when we slipped out for the last break. David, tell us some inspiring stories from Indian country. Well, I would I would point to probably our first couple projects uh, that were in uh, California mm-hmm. uh, with the Yorok tribe and the Round Valley tribe. The Yorok project was the very first registered project in Indian country. And uh, the, the Yorok have uh, have registered uh, credits on land that they reacquired and so uh, they they reacquired that land and now generated several mil- millions of dollars that they can use for other tribal purposes mm-hmm. um, it's also a way of restoring salmon habitat hmm. you know if you don't if you don't cut the trees you don't uh, you don't endanger the the waterways running through your your country and uh, that's good for salmon mm-hmm so the uh, the Round Valley is the other tribe that we worked with. They were our second tribal registration, and uh, we registered about a half a million offsite credits there in 2015, and uh, that's a lot of credits. And the the Round Valley is located in in more of the central part of Northern California, 
uh, a small tribe, but this represented a large amount of revenue for them. Mm-hmm. One thing that we were able to do in registering the Yorak is uh, we convinced the state of California to include tribes in mm-hmm. in the program. Originally, the state of California was hesitant to include tribes, and because we were very knowledgeable in the field, uh, frankly, we talked to BIA about this because in between the state of California and BIA, we were able to convince the state of California that it would be good for tribes to Excellent. include them in the, in the program. So I, I consider that, I mean, that's a fundamental success story mm-hmm, is that mm-hmm. if not for our efforts, tribes would not be included in, at all in the cap-and-trade program. So now, Robin, your travels have taken you far outside the borders of California. We've already heard about some of your endeavors up in Alaska. What are some of the things that uh, you think are stories that would inspire tribes? I think that the things that are most inspiring about the Carbon Project is the impact it can have on the community, Mm. um, both during and after the Carbon Project. When I was in Alaska, for folks that might not have heard the story earlier, we were working with a Port Graham Corporation. It's a village corporation in rural Alaska. And we were able to hire local folks from that immediate area to be work alongside us and partner with us in the carbon project. And that is one example of how a carbon project revenue can lead to local jobs, including local jobs in the forest. And as well as there's tremendous salmon habitat um, and other wildlife and, and food habitat in that area that's that's gets extra protection from being in this project. In that area, there's also potential timber harvest. The village corporation has harvested timber in the past mm-hmm. and has the option to do so in the future. And so there's a balance that can be made, that the project can be flexible to accommodate mm-hmm. timber harvest when it's beneficial to the tribe to harvest timber, um, or they can sell that carbon, those trees, as carbon offsets when it's more beneficial to harvest, to sell it for standing trees. And that potential combination um, can allow the trees to grow larger for longer before they're harvested if they choose to be harvested. So that's one project that that's in the works. That is such a great thing to hear because I think a lot of people who've been listening from the top of the hour they might say, well, you know, we don't want to tie all our trees up because we do do some harvesting of the trees. And you really can set the project up in such a way that a tribe can specify a percentage or something of the trees that they want to harvest. How, how would that work? Absolutely. And that's an important goal for many of the landowners that we work with. Um, for example, we're in the process of we have an ongoing in-progress project with the Mescalero Apache tribe in New Mexico. And one of the um, goals for that project is to use revenue from the carbon project to reopen a mill, which mm. would allow the tribe to do timber harvesting right in that area. So we're working on developing the carbon project and also planning some mill consulting through with some of the other parts of our parent organization, New Forests. And in that area, there's it's a... Uh, a dry area. There's a high concern about fire. Mm -hmm. And so timber harvesting in that area, which we're managing along with the carbon project and we're 
developing the carbon project so that there's kind of buffers that are built in to allow for ongoing timber harvest if the tribe wants to. The potential to reopen that mill and to be able to resume thinning, to restore a forest. The tribe is also doing prescribed burning um, mm-hmm. that well, is both restoration and uh, potentially a, by reopening a mill is good for local jobs and, and good for the forest as well. Mm-hmm. Now, this all brings up another really important point, especially to those of us who are out west. I actually myself reside in northern California And I live in an area where there is high fire risk. So here's the question. If a tribe actually participates in this program, what happens if a fire then comes through those lands that they have been, you know, they've received funds for? Is this a a liability, if you will, that they have? There's actually a built-in buffer pool of credits that have been carved out of all of the various projects to address exactly that okay so it's it's something that was a big topic in the early days of creating the the rules and regulations for this so there's this common pool so if there's a fire in one spot it can be uh, really absorbed by this this insurance pool okay so it's not like a tribe is sticking their neck out and if something happens then basically they're, you know, liable to pay back, you know, or acquire so many carbon offsets? The, uh, they don't have to pay it back, no. Uh-huh. They, um, so, I mean, this pool is there specifically to address fire damage or wind blowdown or uh, other natural forms of loss. Very good. Uh, I mean, Robin, what else would you add to that? Yeah, we have in Northern California, it's not a, a carbon project on tribal land, but we do have one of possibly the first carbon project to have a severe fire burn across it. Mm. And we're in the process of, of going through that, using that buffer pool. Okay. And uh, it, it looks like it. landowners are always at risk of natural disasters of various mm. kinds. Right, right. Um, but putting on a carbon project does not increase the risk. In, in some ways, it is can, seems like it might even be a stabilizing force. Interesting. Well, believe it or not, our time has slipped away. You guys have been great guests. You've shared a lot of practical information. Before we leave, one more time, how does someone get a hold of your organization? Well, we are Forest Carbon Partners, so contact forestcarbonpartners.com. Uh, and David, we want to thank you for this opportunity. It's been great. Yeah, it's been wonderful. Listen, we do have to step away, but I am Dr. David DeRose, your host for American Indian Living. You've been listening to Robin Bellows and David Brentlinger. They are with the Forest Carbon Partners, and you can take advantage of uh, their great services by going, as David mentioned, on the web to forestcarbonpartners.com. That's all for today. We've got to step away. Thank you so much for joining us from the venue of the National Congress of American Indians in Phoenix, Arizona. I'm Dr. DeRose. For all of us at American Indian Living, as always, I'm wishing you the very best of health. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.